Kirk. Oh, goodness. It's come on. Excellent. Uh, for those of you who've been here uh, in past weeks, we've been uh, doing a, a sort of series in the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Uh, we've gotten through to the end of chapter 5. We're kind of pressing pause on that for a couple of months, uh, and we're going to be looking through Revelation chapters 1 to 3. Uh, so uh, don't panic. You know, If you wanted to hear the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we will be coming back to it, uh, but we're just uh, pressing pause for a little while. Uh, so let me pray. It'd be really useful to have that passage open, uh, all eight verses of it. And uh, I'll pray, and we'll get into it. Let's pray. God, our Father, please, um, uh, please help us. You know that we all come uh, to you, into your presence in this moment, to listen to your word uh, from different weeks. Uh, Many of us are tired. uh, Many of us feel stretched in various ways uh, and have things that would distract us, uh, that would prevent us from being able to hear your voice clearly. I pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit. I pray that you would give us uh, the humility that we need to hear your word and to trust it and obey it and receive the blessing that you want us to have from it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I was thinking this week that uh, I I don't think there's any doubt that the uh, church in Australia, the Christian church, uh, is increasingly under pressure. Uh, Sometimes that's for very good reason. Uh, for example, uh, there's real hypocrisy in the church. I was talking to someone uh, over the Easter weekend, and they said to me, you know, that they went along to a church, and, and they saw a whole bunch of people who were, who were great at putting on the act on Sundays. They knew just how to do church. But then over time, she found out what was really going on in their lives. It was hypocrisy. Uh, many of you have experienced that. There are so-called Christian leaders. We've heard about it in this royal commission into uh, child uh, abuse. Uh, Many Christian leaders who are incredibly manipulative, they're power-hungry, and they've engaged in downright abusive practices. So sometimes the church is under pressure for very good reasons. It should be under pressure. Uh, But other times the church is under pressure uh, for seemingly no reason at all, isn't it? Simply for for trying to live in a way that that pleases our God. That's all we want to do. We want to live our lives uh, faithfully, humbly, graciously, in line with our convictions as Christians. uh, And yet we find ourselves under all sorts of pressure. I've certainly experienced that in my own life. I'll share a couple of examples. One is uh, I have a a conviction uh, that the Bible teaches uh, a specific definition of marriage. Marriage is is the lifelong monogamous union between a man and a woman. That's what I think the Bible teaches consistently from start to finish. And of course, I know that in Australia, that definition is likely to be changed at some point. Uh, But as a a registered marriage celebrant, uh, that's going to place lots of pressure on me. How long will our society tolerate people like me who refuse to marry a same-sex couple? At the moment, we're not really tolerated in conversation. When will it be that we're not tolerated legally? I'm not sure. What kind of opposition will there be? Will I have the courage to stand firm on my convictions, even if there is pressure or suffering or persecution? 
Uh, another example, Gabby and I have a, have a very good friend. Uh, we've known him for, for more than 10 years. We've been hiking together. We've been on holidays together. Uh, we've shared lots of uh, really great life experiences together. Brilliant bloke. Uh, most of you uh, probably know, if you're friends with me on Facebook, uh, that I'm not someone who's an overly active uh, kind of Facebooker. I'm not always trying to push some political cause through my Facebook account. Uh, but last year, I did sign a particular petition, and I shared it on Facebook. Uh, I, I just wanted to show my support uh, for what was called the Infant Viability Bill. As some of you know it, it was basically uh, trying to make abortions, uh, make it not possible to have an abortion in Victoria after 24 weeks gestation. So I shared that on Facebook. And our friend was very angry. Very angry. Even though just a few years before that, he'd, he'd celebrated with Gabby and I when we'd showed him photos of the 20-week ultrasound of our daughter Ada. But in, at that point, there was no doubt in his mind that at 20 weeks, this was our child. And he was celebrating with us. And yet now he was outraged that, that I would even contemplate supporting such a bill. Those are just two examples. I'm sure you could think of examples in your own life. Examples of, of how the church in Australia, I think, is increasingly under pressure. It's not all doom and gloom. But there is this pressure. Some, some of you feel it in your workplace. Uh, others, perhaps, uh, you're living in a residential college at university. You feel it there in your classes. Uh, some of you, perhaps, are parents. Uh, and you might feel it in different ways in the local school community. The church in Australia is increasingly under pressure. So, so what do we do about that? How, how do we respond to this pressure? Uh, maybe like one option could be uh, perhaps we all withdraw and become our own little cult here in Thornbury. That could, that could work, a little commune, don't have to deal with anyone uh, who disagrees with us. No, I don't think so. I don't, I'm not advocating that. Uh, but that, that is an option. Uh, some of you uh, perhaps uh, think, look, we should uh, maybe just assimilate. Like it's just too hard to constantly fight the flow of our culture. So, so let's just go with the flow. Let's just give up. And maybe we should uh, try really hard to use politics... Uh, legislation uh, to try and reform our society. Maybe that's the channel. And maybe we should try to retaliate, to, to, to fight back in some way. How should we respond as a church under pressure? Well, what we're going to see as we look at Revelation 1 to 3 over the next couple of months is that as a church under pressure, uh, we should not withdraw, we should not assimilate or retaliate. Instead, uh, we should seek to live as what Revelation is going to call faithful witnesses. As faithful witnesses. And what we're going to see today, I think, is that the only way we'll have the strength to be able to do that is if we're crystal clear on who our God is and what he's done. But it's really, really easy to get thrown around by the world around us. Uh, and the only thing that, that will give you uh, an anchor for your soul, that will provide some kind of ballast, you know, the weightiness in the bottom of a ship that helps it to stay afloat, right? the only thing that will provide ballast for you as a Christian, not the only thing, one of the key things, is knowing who your God is and what he's done. And that's where John starts uh, the book of Revelation. Because Revelation was written, this is my first question there, when was the book of Revelation written? It was written at the end of the first century uh, to a church that was also under pressure. It was during the reign of, of the Roman emperor Domitian, and during this time, uh, really there were two main sources of pressure. 
Uh, the first uh, was there was this growing culture of emperor worship. Right? The, the emperor of the Roman Empire, he basically considered himself to be God, and therefore he should be worshipped. So most towns had a temple dedicated to the emperor and the assumption was that you would go along to that temple, that you would bow your knee and that you would willingly confess that Caesar was Lord. Now you can imagine you've just become a Christian, perhaps 10, uh, maybe 30 years before that, that creates some tension for you, right? Because you don't believe that Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. So what do you do? Massive social pressure. Added to that, it was the pressure of what were called uh, local trade guilds. Right, this is before Facebook and any social networking. They had these, these social networks uh, in local towns, sort of pleasure networks, uh, and they were connected to particular trades. So the tent makers, the blacksmiths, the farmers, the fishermen, all of them had their own little network, and each of those networks, each of those trades, uh, had their own god. Right, so, so if a Christian fisherman uh, wanted to be a part of his local trade guild, right, well, which, remember, it's his, it's his main source of community outside of his family, uh, he, had, he was under immense pressure uh, to worship the god of the sea, you see. He had to worship that god so that, the, that not just him, but the whole fishing industry would be blessed. If he didn't, he'd be kicked out of the network. So John's writing to a church that is already under pressure and is probably going to be under more pressure soon. If you've got your Bible there, you could flick forward to Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. We'll look at this in more detail, but that tells us that the church is already under pressure. The church in Smyrna was afflicted, was in poverty, was being slandered. They're experiencing economic hardships because they're Christians. That's Revelation 2, verse 9. And, and if you go down to verse 13, you see that at least one person in Pergamon, right, a guy named Antipas, uh, has already been killed for being a Christian. Right, there's not lots of people being killed at this point, but this is a sign of things to come. Right, John's writing to this church, and they're already under real pressure. And his message to them is that it's it's not going to get any better. In fact, it will probably get worse. So this is a sign of things to come. Now that's what he means in verse 1. If you have a look at verse 1 there, and he says, uh, his message about, is about things which must soon take place. Right, John, John expects that most of the things in his book, the suffering, the persecution, the pressure on the church, uh, will not occur in the far distant future. right? I'm laying some cards on the table here. Right? They won't occur in the far distant future at the end of the world. No, they must occur very soon. They begin now. And they'll continue to occur and over and over again uh, until Christ returns. Suffering, persecution, pressure for the church. So Revelation was written at the end of the first century. Uh, the church is already under pressure uh, and it's, good. it's not going to get much better. It's going to be under more pressure soon. Our next question, what, what genre is the book of Revelation? Uh, it's important to ask this uh, because the Bible is actually full of lots of different kinds of literature. Uh, some of you know that, some of you don't. Uh, history, prophecy, poetry, apocalypse, proverbs, biography, letters, parables, like all of them and more uh, are in the Bible. Uh, so we've got to ask, what genre are we reading when we read the Bible if we want to interpret it faithfully? 
It's a bit like reading the newspaper. I know people don't tend to read newspaper like actually on paper these days. Some people in a cafe do it. Uh, I've seen it, uh, evidence, but it doesn't happen very much. But if you read the newspaper uh, and uh, you actually read different parts of the newspaper differently, right? Don't you? Like you read the comics differently uh, to how you read the opinion pieces. You go, that's just that guy's opinion. Or you read that differently to the weather report, right? You expect a, a certain amount of precision in the weather report that you don't expect in the person who's kind of emotionally expressing their opinion. And you read that differently to the classifieds. Right? Details are very important in the classifieds. Right? So all of us know, somewhat intuitively, uh, that the genre that you're reading should influence how you interpret it. Well, the same is true when you're reading the Bible. So what genre is Revelation? Well, three things. First, uh, John tells us in verse 1, uh, unsurprisingly given the name of the book, uh, that it's a revelation. Right? And some of you know that that word revelation is the word apocalypse. Right? Apocalypse, it's a combo of two words uh, which talk about uh, revealing things or, or unveiling. It's kind of pulling back the curtain on deep truths about reality. And like most apocalyptic literature, uh, revelation is full of symbolism. Uh, some of you know that, right? In fact, the whole book is really structured around seven symbolic visions. As verse 1 indicates, right? God shows John these visions. God makes known things to John through these symbolic visions. And then John writes down what he sees. So why does that matter? Well, I think it matters because our default position when interpreting Revelation should be to interpret it symbolically. Not literally. Now by that, I don't mean that the, that the reality behind these symbols doesn't literally exist. It does. I don't mean that the symbols don't rep- represent real historical events that may happen over and over again throughout history. They do. But I do mean that we shouldn't get too caught up with connecting these symbols to any specific historical events. They're symbols of the kind of things, the kind of events that will happen over and over again between Christ's first and second coming. Of course, sometimes the symbols are very confusing. I don't know if any of you have read a bit of Revelation. So I think we have to be deeply convinced that Revelation was written, it's called Revelation, right? It's written to reveal truth, not to obscure it. To to reveal truth. I understand often you've got to have a bit of background knowledge to to interpret the symbols, but it's not secret knowledge. It's knowledge largely from the Old Testament. Revelation is full of Old Testament quotes, Old Testament allusions, more than just about any other book. So once you understand the background, the the symbolisms kind of make a whole lot more sense. So Revelation is first an apocalypse, second a prophecy. Look in verse 3, John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So John sees himself in the same boat as the Old Testament prophets. He's bringing the very words of God to God's people. Now, like the Old Testament prophets, some of those words predict the future. But as I've already said, not all of them, in fact, not many of them, I think, are about the far distant future, the end of the world. Most of them are about what must soon take place. They're about how God's people should live now. 
uh, in this whole age between Christ's first and second coming. Goodness me, my daughter's very upset this afternoon. She's feeling the pressure. So Revelation's an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and it's also a letter. It's a strange combo. You see there, uh, it's a letter written by the Apostle John uh, to specific churches in the province of Asia. It's there in verse 4. And you can also see at the end of the letter, John signs off as if it's a letter. So as one kind of writer said, Revelation is a prophecy, right? God's word to God's people, uh, but it's cast in the mold of an apocalypse. So there's all these symbolic visions, it's a bit different to the average prophecy. And it's written down in the form of a letter to specific people. That, that's the genre that we're reading. And all of that will influence how we interpret it. Uh, thirdly, uh, exactly how was Revelation written? Uh, if I can get... Uh, Raymond, can you just pop up the first of those slides? I've got a little diagram. But this is basically a summary of verses 1 to 3. Uh, John's saying that, uh, that the Revelation uh, was from God, uh, just as in John's Gospel... Uh, the Father gives Jesus his Son particular words, particular revelation. Uh, Jesus, if you look, uh, uses an angel to send that revelation to John in the form of these symbolic visions, and then John writes them down for God's servants, for the church. So that, that's how this revelation came to exist. I hope, I hope you can trace that if you look at, at verses 1 to 3. Uh, and that's a, a, important at least for one reason, which is this is not John's revelation. It's God's revelation. It's God's revelation uh, that he wants his people to have, to know, to be blessed by. And that leads to my fourth question there which is, who was Revelation written for? Uh, let's flick this away, but you can see there, servants. Oh, we'll come back to that in a second. Raymond, can you just uh, make that one disappear for me? Thanks, mate. So from verse 4, if you have a look at verse 4, it's clear that Revelation most immediately was written for these seven churches in the province of Asia. That's not Asia like, like China or Japan. Like This is Asia, it's modern-day Western Turkey. That's where these churches are. Uh, but it's actually broader than these seven churches. Because these seven churches weren't all the churches in Asia. Right? There were other churches in Colossae and Herapolis and a whole bunch of other places. Right? So these seven churches are representative churches. They're, they're not all the churches. Right? Well, why choose this number seven? Because in our Jewish tradition, the number seven symbolizes completeness, kind of fullness. Right? Think seven days in the week. The seventh day completes the week. Right? So these, these seven churches uh, represent the fullness of God's church. Not just the fullness of God's church in Asia, uh, but the fullness of all God's church uh, through in all times, in all places, between Christ's first and second coming. They're, they're representative churches. And that's why in verse 1, John says, God gave him this revelation for all his servants. If you're a Christian, you're a servant. You're a servant of God. This revelation is for you. And why was it written? Well, in verse 3, John says uh, it was written to bless us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. That's right at the start of Revelation. 
Uh, same kind of blessing language happens, I think, six or seven times. And then right at the, uh, on the way through Revelation, uh, and then at the end of Revelation, in Revelation uh, 22, uh, verse 7, uh, John says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy. Right, John is assuring you and I uh, that if we read and hear and trust and obey what is in this book, right, if we really take it to heart, God will bless us. Blessing blessing here means you have God's approval. God's favour rests upon you. So so no matter how much you're under pressure, no matter how much you're suffering, no matter how much others are mocking you or taunting you, uh, you can know that you have the approval of the one that really matters. You've got God's approval. His blessing is upon you. So those are kind of five introductory questions, kind of laying down some foundations. And my last question flows from that, which is, how do verses 4 to 8, this is John's greeting and his praise of God, how do they convey God's blessing to us? How do they convey God's blessing to a church that is under pressure? If we today were to take these words to heart, as John wants us to do, how would they strengthen us, assure us, bless us? And I think it's that John is reminding us of who our God is and what he's done. So you'll see that the Father, Son, and Spirit are represented here. Right in verse 4, John reminds us of who our God and Father is. The one who is and who was and who is to come. It's a reference to God's name in the Old Testament. Some of you would have heard this. It's the great I Am. It's Yahweh, the Lord, capital letters in the Old Testament. He's the unchanging one. The one who exists eternally without beginning or end. The Alpha and Omega is is said down in verse 8. How is remembering this a blessing when we're under pressure? Uh, Well, I think a a couple of things. It reminds us that uh, when our world is constantly changing, uh, often not for the better, our God is never changing. Our God is the same yesterday, today and forever. But it reminds us that that when we feel tired and burdened and worn out, that our God is never tired. He's never running short on energy. It reminds us that, that even when we feel surprised or intimidated by what life throws our way, our God is never surprised or intimidated. Never. God sees the end from the beginning. God, our God has all of human history in the palm of his hands. His plans and purposes are unchanging and they will prevail. He's the one who was and is, uh, and who is and was and is to come. That's real, I don't know, that's real uh, solidity. Gives you a real foundation for your faith. Second, uh, the letters from God the Spirit, or as John says, uh, from the seven spirits that are before God's throne. Now, once again, John's not getting quirky in his theology, saying that there's seven Holy Spirits. Oh, hey there, kind of nine people in the Godhead. Uh, um, no, he's talking about uh, the number seven, right? It's the completeness of God's Spirit, the fullness of God's Spirit. He's saying the fullness of God's Spirit is before his throne. I said Old Testament background, right? If you want to read up later on, uh, read up on Zechariah chapter 4. Because in Zechariah chapter 4, there's a picture of God's throne room and there's a lampstand with seven lamps, representing the the, the fullness of God's spirit. 
And the point is, in Zechariah uh, chapter 4, verse 6, that God, ru- that God rules his world, and not by earthly power or might, but by the power of his spirit. That's how God rules his world. So what does this mean? It means that, that even though God is transcendent, right? he sits on his throne as the one who is, who was, and who is to come, even though he's transcendent, he's not distant. By the power of his spirit, he's present with all his people in the midst of their suffering, going out into all the world with his people. Uh, thirdly, in verses 5 to 8, uh, John reminds us, this is really the, the focus of this section, uh, John reminds us of God the Son. He reminds us of who he is and what he's done. Uh, you might want to write down these R's. I didn't put them in the outline because I didn't want it to get too messy there. But uh, I've summarized these verses with four R's. People laugh about my love of alliteration, but here you go. Uh, Jesus Christ is our rejected and risen and reigning and returning king. First, he's our rejected king. Right here, he's the faithful witness, John says. This goes back to Psalm 89, verses 36 and 37. Psalm 89 is a good psalm to read if you want to understand these verses. God says in Psalm 89, verse 36, that David's throne will endure before him like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, uh, which is the faithful witness in the sky. Right, so, so Jesus is God's king. Right? He rules on David's eternal throne. You can chase up more in 2 Samuel chapter 7, Psalm 2, the promise of this eternal kingdom. Jesus is, is the promised king who rules on David's eternal throne. And like the sun and moon, he will rule uh, eternally. Right? The sun and moon rule the sky eternally. Jesus Christ will rule eternally. But what else is in this idea of Jesus being the faithful witness? Well, two things. The first is that Jesus is a faithful witness, but because as the only one who's come from heaven to earth, he's the only one, he's kind of uniquely qualified to give us a faithful testimony about God, a faithful witness about God. We can trust his words. That's a big theme in John's Gospel, who also wrote Revelation. But the second thing, uh, is that this word witness is also where we get our word martyr. But you know what a martyr is? Someone uh, who's willing to be rejected, to suffer, uh, even to die. Uh, so the point here is that even though Jesus is God's eternal king, he's going to rule over da- on David's throne forever, he's also a rejected king. He could only take up his crown because he was willing to endure his cross. He's the faithful witness. He's the ultimate martyr. And that's encouraging for a church under pressure because Jesus doesn't ask us to go through anything that he hasn't gone through himself. If you are ever mocked or rejected or hated or persecuted or even killed for being a Christian, you can know that Christ has already been there. And yet he remained faithful to the end. And so that's our calling, to be faithful witnesses. To walk faithfully in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus, our rejected king. Second, Jesus, uh, John reminds us that Jesus is our risen king. Right here, you see that phrase there? He's the firstborn from the dead. Right, once again, Psalm 89, verse 27, God says, And I will appoint him, my king, uh, to be my firstborn 
the most exalted of the kings of the earth. Death is really the great enemy of humanity. We're really good at prolonging life. We've got anti-aging creams and all sorts of things. Like We're on top of prolonging life. But everyone dies. Like Death is the last great enemy. And yet Jesus has conquered death. Death had no hold on the Lord Jesus. He's the firstborn from the dead. So God has appointed him as king in his kingdom. He is our risen king. Our third, John reminds us that Jesus is our reigning king. He lives, he reigns, he rules over every king on earth. He's exalted. Every politician or president or prime minister or ruler is raised up by the Lord Jesus Christ, even the ungodly and vicious ones, so that he can use them for a time to achieve the plans and purposes of his kingdom. Jesus is our reigning king, above all the kings of the earth. Finally, in verse 7, one day Jesus will be our returning king. So even though now many might scoff at us, perhaps saying, where is your God? Where where is this king that you speak of? That one day every eye will see. Even those who rejected and pierced Jesus, every eye will see. That Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords when he returns as our King. So that's John's reminder. He's reminding us of who God the Son is. He's our rejected and risen and reigning and returning King. But he also reminds us of what Christ has done for us. In verse 5, have a look at verse 5. He says that Christ has loved us, or or really he, he loves us. So so I said before, when I was talking about blessing, right? If some people reject you, if they mock you, if they hate you, you can know that the the one person who really matters, right? The the one who sits on the throne and rules over all the kings of the earth, that one loves you. He loves you. But how can you know that? How can you know that when when Christ is allowing you, is allowing us as the church, the the people he supposedly loves, to be persecuted, to suffer, to be oppressed? How can you know that he loves you? Well, the only way you can know is if you fix your eyes on the cross. right? And that's why John draws us there by talking about Christ's great act of freeing us by his blood. He loves us and he's freed us by his blood. Some of you perhaps... Uh, uh, maybe less familiar with the Christian message, and you're wondering, oh, what, like, what does John mean when he talks about being freed? Like, what do I have to be freed from? Because by using this language of freedom, John's clearly saying that, that apart from being a Christian, apart from Christ, spiritually speaking, all of us are slaves. Right? We're slaves to sin. And the reason he's saying that is that he once heard Jesus say it. It's in his gospel. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, uh, excuse me, uh, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Well, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, Raymond, can you you pop that other diagram? Um, Oh, smooth, smooth. Good, good, good. So if you look at this diagram, uh, 
Jesus is defining sin uh, not just as doing the wrong thing, like, like breaking a rule. Right? He's defining sin as when you choose to put something other than God. Imagine this is your life. Right? Not the um, kind of TV show, but imagine this is your life. And um, uh, Jesus is defining sin as when you put something other than God at the center of your life. Right? It's kind of the very core of who you are, the core of your identity. And he's saying that that if you choose to do that, in the end, whatever you put in the center of your life, that person or thing uh, will control you. They'll enslave you. So if you put uh, the pursuit of power at the center of your life, uh, you'll end up enslaved to power. You'll be so obsessed with getting the thing that's most important to you, getting your hands on more power, that you'll do pretty much anything to get it. You'll sacrifice anything, your morality, your family, your marriage... All in the name of getting more power. If you put money at the center of the life, same deal. You'll be enslaved to money. I don't care about my morality, just whatever it takes. But if you put acceptance at the center of your life, you'll end up enslaved to the very people that you're desperate to please. And you'll wonder, why do I feel so controlled by this person? It's because you're driven by getting their approval. But Jesus says, all of us sin, all of us do this. We put things other than God at the center of our lives. And so all of us are slaves to sin. We need to be set free. You can take that down now. Thanks, Raymond. And of course, in Jesus' day, if you wanted to free someone who was an economic slave, you had to head down to your local marketplace and pay the price to redeem them. Right? Every slave had a redemption price. You talk to the slave owner, how much to free this slave, pay the price, they're free. That's how it works. Likewise, we uh, who are spiritual slaves need someone who's willing to redeem us, to pay the price, to set us free from everything that enslaves us. And what is that price? Well, it's what John says. Jesus frees us from our sins by his blood. Jesus had to give his life for us. Now you might think, well, why did that have to be the price? Well, why not couldn't Jesus just be smacked around a bit, just a, a bit of punishment? Like, well, why did he have to die for our sins? Well, he had to die, but because when we sin, uh, it, it's a rebellion against God. Right? Well, we cut ourselves off from God, and God is not just anyone. He's the source of all life and everything good. So when you reject God, spiritually speaking, you are dead. And physically, uh, you will die. And in this verse, John's saying Jesus uh, has set us free from that. In his death on the cross, he's died the death that we deserve. The the perfect son of God, uh, who deserved freedom and life, dies the death of a slave. So that you and I, who deserve slavery and death, can be freed and become sons and daughters of God. If you've heard people talk about the gospel, that is the gospel. The good news that Jesus has freed us by his blood. And that's how you can know no matter how much you suffer or get mocked or get hated or rejected, you can be assured when you look to the cross that Christ loves you. That's what John wants you to be assured of, that he loves you. Because by his blood, he's freed you. And finally, he's loved us, he's freed us, he's transformed us. Uh, He's transformed us really from being uh, a people who are slaves to sin uh, to being a people who are slaves to God. 
You say, servants of God. That's what he says. Because every Christian, John says, is a priest. Some of you think that the priest, you have to be wearing a collar. No, 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 no. Every Christian is a priest. Because what's a priest? A priest is someone who's got access to God. And that's a privilege that every Christian enjoys. A priest is someone who represents God in the world, and that's a responsibility that every Christian has. And a priest is someone who kind of mediates between God and others. They help people to connect with God. And that's what we do when we share this incredible news of who Christ is and what he's done, that he's loved us, that he's set us free by his blood on the cross. So Christ has loved us, he's freed us, and he's transformed us from being slaves to sin to being slaves of God, servants of God, priests of God. So like this church that John's writing to in the first century, the Australian church in the 21st century is increasingly under pressure, and I don't think that'll decrease. I'm not a prophet or anything, but I'm just saying where things go. And we shouldn't respond to that by withdrawing or by assimilating or by retaliating. We should respond by seeking to follow in Christ's steps as faithful witnesses, living our Christian lives faithfully, speaking faithfully about our Lord Jesus, even if it means being rejected, suffering, maybe even being killed for the sake of following him. And I think the only way we'll have the strength to keep doing that day in, day out, year after year, is if we're crystal clear on who our God is and what he's done. Right? It's that, as I said earlier, that, that really gives you an anchor for your soul, truths that you can remind yourself of when you feel under pressure. Uh, let me pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you uh, that you care about all the different aspects of our lives, uh, that you are fully aware of uh, any suffering that might, we might experience for the sake of following our Lord Jesus. Uh, you know that the pressures that we feel, and we thank you that uh, you gave this revelation, uh, Father, to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who revealed it to John in these visions and wrote it down for us as your servants, uh, that we might be blessed and assured of your great love for us and, uh, and your great work in our lives and that you rule, and that your plans and purposes will prevail. And so I pray that uh, this day your word would take root in our hearts, and over the coming weeks, as as we look through these chapters of Revelation, uh, that you would really help us uh, to work out together how to live as faithful witnesses uh, as we experience the pressures. Uh, In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.